Aboru boye baba lawo Iboru boye Welcome to La Cura Podcast, decolonizing Latinx health and reclaiming traditional healing. La Cura Podcast is a project of Mi Gente in collaboration with Resilient Strategies. Welcome to La Cura, everybody. I am so happy you are listening. I hope you're doing well wherever you are in your special part of the world. I hope you're finding comfort in all the small things from, you know, a warm, delicious meal to maybe you took a delicious nap sometime this week or a long bath. Maybe you were able to have a great conversation on the phone with a friend or built even deeper connections with somebody you're quarantining with. Maybe you just got to laugh a lot with one of your kids um, or you got to contemplate something you hadn't contemplated about um, that brought you some solace or some good learning and reflection And whatever it is, I just hope you're finding comfort and calm and hopefully a little joy, if not a lot of it. Um, I know it's been a hard, long week. I know that it's been a week where we have lost a lot of lives to COVID-19. And definitely that moment that was predicted, I think, weeks ago, where we would all know someone who lost someone. And I know I definitely do. And I just hope that you all are holding each other in every way possible and loving on each other. So with that, I um, want to share something kind of special with you all this week. I am part of a project called Resilient Strategies, which is part of the introduction to La Cura when I'm like, You know, La Cura is a project of Mi Gente in collaboration with Resilient Strategies. So uh, it's part of the introduction. And um, I don't think I've ever openly talked about what Resilient Strategies is here. So I'll tell you now what it is. Um, I do say it is a healing justice project transforming the impact of systems on our bodies, our behaviors, and the organizations we build as a critical part of the process to liberation. So that definitely is who we are. Um, but a little bit more, this project is um, pretty special to me. I've been working on it for the last couple of years now with two folks that I really love and admire. Mark Anthony Johnson, who I've been friends with for the past whew, um, 17 years. I can't believe it's been 17 years and And we're old, <laughs> uh, older and wiser. I, uh, I've, yeah, I've known Mark Anthony for 17 years. We worked together very closely in 2003, 2004. Um, and a few years after that in Los Angeles, we organized together in South LA. We have, you know, birthed uh, a project together called, uh, Dignity and Power Now that's doing really beautiful, amazing things in Los Angeles. We've also practiced our own um, spiritual tradition together, Avifa, and we've just been through a lot. So um, that's Mark Anthony. He's an acupuncturist, and he is also the lead coordinator of this really awesome uh, organization called the Frontline Wellness Network, which is organizing um health practitioners in Los Angeles to really throw a wrench into the expansion of mass incarceration and really put the health of people incarcerated and formerly incarcerated at the center of this fight. And so that's Mark Anthony. And um, Prentice Hemphill, who is somebody who I actually met 
a really long time ago, but have had the fortune to build with very recently. I'm an apprentice um, back in 2007. I think it was 2007 um, during the the social forum. And I've, you know, known of Prentice and their work for a long time because of really important people in my life, like Patrice Colors and folks like Tanya Bernard and other people like Carla Gonzalez, whom I love. And I um, did a program. I was a participant with uh, Jenner of Somatics a few years ago, and um, Prentice got to be one of my trainers in that program where um, I'm really lucky that I did it. I felt like I got a lot of healing and transformation from it and just got to see what a gifted teacher and practitioner they are. And so they're from Texas. Uh, They are Black genderqueer facilitator and writer and just a person who is dedicated a lot of their energy and talent to thought leadership around healing and transformation for a long time now. And so I have done some beautiful work with Black Lives Matter Global Network as director of Healing Justice and uh, Generation 5, Communities United Against Violence, and just grappling with questions of how we value and transform ourselves, the harm we enact and experience, all while transforming conditions and institutions around us. So, So this project, right, that we're building together, it's still taking shape, and we hope to share more about it soon. So with that being said, we did a webinar this past Wednesday um, called Healing, Resilience, and Power and uh, really explored the question of politicized healing and what it can offer us in this moment. So I was super excited to record it and now present it to you in the form of a podcast episode. So uh, here it is. Enjoy. Thank you for being here. Thank you for arriving with us. Um, we're going to kick it off to Prentice to bring us into a conversation on what our intention is for this webinar. Awesome. Thanks, Mark Anthony. Again, really good to be with you all. Um, we were actually intending to do this webinar prior to this moment, um, and it was important for us to kind of reflect on um, what this could provide even in this moment, to be in these conversations about healing, politicized healing, resilience. So I I think first, just wanting to acknowledge that we are in a moment of a lot of instability. We're in a moment of a lot of loss. Um, And we're in a moment of a lot of collective grief, um, lives that are being lost, um, conditions that are rapidly shifting, and also um, an attentiveness to the changing political landscape and how it's gonna impact us and our communities. Um, I think we're also noticing a a kind of inability of our systems to really care and respond to this loss of life and to this instability. And we wanted to, as a group, kind of as this becomes starker and clear, to raise some questions that feel really critical. So what can well-being mean in this time for us when we are facing illness on individual and collective levels, when we're facing all that we are? Um, Can we continue to move Um, the concept of care from isolation into the collective and what can that look like, especially um, across difference and in these conditions. And can we, um, one thing that's really important to us is really getting rid of this idea that healing could ever be apolitical and really wanting to walk us through um, what we feel is a really important uh, piece for us to understand that our healing is inextricable to um, our liberation to building power, and we're going to move more into that. Um, so, yeah, on that note, we just wanted to take these concepts, these terms that get shared, and clarify what what we think um, they mean as a, as resilient strategies. What's useful about them, especially for movement building, um, and to start to generate some alignment 
um, throughout movement. So that's why we really wanted to continue with this, creating this space. And in this moment, we thought it could be useful for all the folks that are kind of engaging with politicized healing or movement building or healing coming from different doors. We wanted to really say, here's, here's a framework that we think can actually help us um, heal on the scale that we need to and also build power on the scale that we need to. So that's why we're here. I'll pass it back to Fran. Again, hi, everybody. So with that beautiful framing to what we're trying to do today, um, again, thanks for joining us. I want to start us off with kind of grounding ourselves in our physiology and our body, which we just did. Um, but now we're going to go a little bit into the theory and the understanding. So my task today is to talk about the possibility of healing based on our own physiology. And um, we felt strongly about talking about this because understanding what our body and spirit is doing and being aware, like self-aware, uh, also builds an understanding of ourselves, builds an understanding of the collective, and ultimately our communities, um, the communities that we work, want, work with, um, creating transformation. And so with that being said, I wanted to just name that the information that I'm sharing is kind of a compilation of different learnings or readings that I've done or we've done on trauma and healing scholars like Judith Herman and Vester van der Kolk and Peter Levine and Resma Menachem. But just as important is to name that I've, I've been rooted in traditional indigenous practices for about 17 years now. And I also want to honor my own elders who I think um, are, you know, part of a legacy of indigenous traditions and um, and name folks like Chief Oluwosho Lagba de Popola, Curandera and midwife, traditional midwife, uh, Doctora Crescencia Rodriguez, um, and many others who've taught me that our body is infinitely wise and that our ancestors were as well. And that for millennia, they were rooted in building our own capacity and their own capacity for safety and security, but also love, connection, belonging, and building and sustaining good in individual and collective health. So I just wanted to, to name that before we kind of go into our physiology. Let's start by acknowledging that our nervous systems from day one are designed to seek safety and security. And we live in a world that obviously often does not feel safe. And for many of us in our community, it never feels safe, right? And it hasn't been for perhaps our entire lifetime. And we're currently going through uh, what we understand as a wave of collective trauma. Um, and this wave, like previous waves, Two shall pass, but that energy, that intensity of the energy might remain, the residual energy is going to remain in our nervous systems for a long time. And some people, my understanding is just a challenging time, and some people might understand it as trauma, right? And some folks um, are really clear because they have intergenerational trauma stored in their bodies, and, and they also suffer from ongoing toxic stress of oppression over their entire lifetimes. And so with that, I want to take us through a, to a slide of one definition that we really like of uh, Judith Herman's definition. She's a scholar, like I said, of um, healing and, and trauma and has written some beautiful pieces that you all should check out. Her name is Judith Herman. And one uh, to quote her, when a real or perceived threat overwhelms the body's natural ability to protect and or defend itself. That's how she defines trauma. Again, when a real or perceived threat overwhelms the body's natural ability to protect or defend itself. And what we're talking about is the threat right now of COVID-19 uh, is both real and also perceived for some of us who might not be frontline workers or for some of us who might not have gotten sick or know someone who's gotten sick. And then also we've been under the real threat of the police state. We've been under the real threat uh, of poverty, homophobia, and a whole slew of oppression. And so that overwhelms us, both our, our body's ability to fight off disease and illness um, and mental health issues, as well as our collective ability to fight uh, the state, right, and to defend ourselves. And so with that being said, I want to take us to the next slide and talk a little bit about this um, really amazing body that we have, that we were gifted, that is so incredibly wise. We have a part of our brain that is considered the primal part of our brain, the 
oldest, the eldest part of our brain, that some call the lizard brain, right? The, the instinctual sort of survival um, part of our brain. And within that, we have this, this nerve called the vagus nerve. Uh, the vagus nerve is um, extraordinary. We wanted to name it because there's so many of us that are, that are right now experiencing so much. So much of my community is talking about the anxiety they're feeling, the fear, the, the terror to some degree, the sleeplessness, even the, the depression to some degree. And so important to name that the, the vagus nerve, again, connected to this lizard brain, is, is, is responsible for sending messages to the rest of our body for the fight flight and freeze uh, responses, right? That create safety and security. Um, I think our number one task from the moment that we're born is to survive, right? And from there we can live out um, and and live out our purpose um, in in all kinds of ways, but to stay safe, to build security and safety for ourselves, right? We animals, we're living, breathing beings, mammals. And so that's our, our, our task at the cellular level. And this nerve, along with the lizard brain, again, runs very deep into the rest of our body, connecting our throat, our lungs, our, our heart, our stomach, our liver, our spleen, pancreas, kidney, gut, all the way to our colon, right? And so this nerve receives and manifests messages through and felt sensation in our bodies that it's okay to relax, right? Or that it, we need to act now in order to protect ourselves, right? And so it tells our muscles and body when to contract. It regulates our breathing, our heart rate. It creates inflammation. It can help us and not be inflamed. Um, it reduces pain and improves our mood. So it manages all of our fear and all of our unconscious felt sensations, which is really important. And so why we're naming this is because for us to sort of be aware, um, as Razma McKenum, who is a, a social worker and a writer said, the vagus nerve is where we experience a felt sense of love, compassion, grief, fear, dread, sadness, loneliness, those things that people are experiencing right now, whether it's hope, whether it's despair, it has everything to do with with our um, felt need for safety and security, right? And the emotional responses, right? From, From that gut feeling that we get from our stomach turning, our heart sinking, right? To our shoulders tightening, to also the good parts when our spirit soars and and when we're happy and we feel on top of the world, right? With that being said, I think when our nervous system, right? Both the lizard brain, our vagus nerve is not in a place that is settled and regulated and coherent, then what could happen is that fight, flight, and freeze response can end up being turned on, which is always on actually, but end up being a way in which we react to things that don't deem that response, right? So we can feel like fighting when in reality we need to just have a conversation or we can feel like shutting down and freezing when we need to be present or or, or we can feel like we're running away when it's important to take action, right? And so when we are dysregulated because of trauma or the toxic stress that we're going through, we end up responding in a reactive ways, reactionary sometimes, that can really wreak havoc not only on our own systems, right, in the way that we feel, but also wreak havoc on relationships, wreak havoc on the, the environment that we're building, whether that's in our movement work, whether that is in our families, whether that is the relationship to ourselves. And so we wanted to emphasize this because it's important to know right now because of the trauma and post this COVID moment and post many other waves of trauma that our communities have gone through at scale, our nervous system will have an altered perception of risk and safety. And our main task from now on and from forever and millennia on is to resettle it, not only for ourselves, but once this pandemic is over and done with, and and we venture out into the world to be able to retake our work with our peers, with the collective and in community in a way that our own physiology won't, and our physiology and survival mechanisms won't work against us, right? And so that's where we want to situate ourselves in resilience in this moment, right? Again, I'm going to say it so we ensure because, um, you know, we're going to have an altered sense of of what is safe um, and have been for a long time, but particularly after this pandemic, we have to ensure that our own physiology and survival mechanisms don't work against ourselves, right? Both individually and collectively. And 
um, and then have an unregulated fight, flight, or freeze response that can be applied when the situation is not necessary, right? When When that particular situation does not deem it necessary in the way we respond. And so that's what we wanted to talk today about resilience because it's a practice. It's an emotional, spiritual muscle, intentional one to soothe our physiology, to soothe our nervous system, to work, to reintegrate and cohere that vagus nerve um, so that we can be all the things um, that we need to be for ourselves, but also for our community, for our family, and to build a sort of movement and work that we want to shape the future that we want to have. And so now with that, I want to hand over the mic um, to Mark Anthony Johnson to take us to Politicize Healing. Thanks, Ron. And uh, thank you for taking us through some of that. You know, really our intention for that last section uh, was start we're starting to make this conversation explicit uh, in terms of the work that we do uh, to challenge systems, uh, to organize, uh, and to know that that work is not separate from our minds, bodies, and spirits, and the nervous systems that ties all those things together, right? And so uh, a lot of what we want to do is really make that explicit because we know that our bodies are not separate from these systems. Uh, and so as we talk about politicized healing, uh, we feel like it has something really important to offer in this moment with uh, that framework in mind. And so uh, we uh, wanna introduce this idea of politicized healing as we're thinking about it uh, and really break it up into two definitions. And, and uh, we really think about these two definitions as a starting place for how we understand politicized healing and how we understand resilience. We really think that resilience and the practice of resilience sits within a broader bucket uh, that we feel is in service of politicized healing, uh, which isn't always talked about in that way. Uh, But to start, we look at uh, politicized healing as uh, rooted in a definition of what is political. And we think about political as anything where any moment where power and ideology converge to move an agenda. And while many of us operate from a place that all things are political, uh, we think it's important to be explicit and to be able to identify and and diagnose the politics of a moment or of an action by really being able to see what power is being used, uh, what the ideas and values uh, that exist under that power uh, being used, and what's the agenda What's the intention? What's the vision that is driving it? And we can see some of this now, right? And as we look at uh, the COVID-19 debates that are happening around the federal stimulus package uh, that was passed, where you saw uh, Senate and Congress folks debating around whether relief was going to focus on people uh, and at what frequency were folks going to be given resources, or were we going to focus on uh, companies, corporations, businesses as a way of um, stabilizing the economy as a way of stabilizing uh, communities, right? And while we know those aren't uh, unique to this moment, in fact, we've seen those agendas being pushed uh, previously with the tax uh, cuts that we saw uh, with the current administration. Uh, We can trace these agendas uh, in our everyday lives and see that there's a through line in which power is being used to advance an ideology that is certainly anti-Black, anti-woman, anti-poor working class people, anti-migrant, and all the things that we are working to challenge, right? Um, And it doesn't just go for, you know, our targets, uh, but also we can think about our own work in this way, right? And we often do, uh, but I think it's important to call on particular examples. We can look at the Black Panther Party, which for me is a really exciting example of this, uh, and the ways in which one of the pillars of their politics was Uh, the idea of community control and self-determination, right? This idea that communities should be able to govern and control the resources in their communities, as well as the institutions that facilitate the use of those resources. Uh, And this is why President Johnson uh, started to move the war against poverty and then started to create these community action programs. Uh, You saw the Black Panther Party to organize, to actually say the community should be owning and operating those community action programs, those health clinics, those job clinics, all of those things. Uh, but then also had a, a much more clear agenda that wasn't just about looking at 
what opportunities uh, local government or federal government was providing, but also built up uh, its own institutions. And so they built up health clinics, right? Uh, and trained everyday folks to be able to do things like take blood pressure, uh, to be able to do sickle cell screenings and the like, right? And so at every given moment, you see uh, folks like the Black Panther Party as an example, leveraging community-based power to advance an ideology of self-determination and community control and to move that agenda and what looks like a campaign uh, to build those things up and to build infrastructure up and skills up uh, across the country, right? Uh, and we feel like this is a really important piece of this conversation around healing, right? It's certainly in this moment as COVID-19 is uh, impacting our community so um, in such a sharp way. Uh, there's a very live conversation that has kicked up even in the last 24 hours around how black folks across the country are being impacted by COVID-19. Uh, we see that uh, in counties that are majority black uh, versus counties that are majority white, the infection rates are three times as high, the death rates are six times as high, right? And in places like Milwaukee where black folks are 26% of the population, there's 73% of the deaths, right? And so we very much see that health um, is the outcome of what political agendas have been waged and what political agendas are currently being waged. Because we also know uh, that the pre-existing conditions, the rates of high blood pressure, the waste, the, the pre-existing medical vulnerabilities that exist for our folks across communities, uh, for our folks in jails and prisons, are not uh, apolitical or not uh, absent of this history, but they are the product of uh, many, many campaigns uh, to harm our folks. Uh, and so we see politics as situated uh, within a really clear analysis of how do the systems that govern our lives and sustain our lives, uh, how do they move, how are bodies in relationship to them? Uh, and again, what is the power we're leveraging? Uh, what is the ideology that grounds that? What are the ideas about how we think the world should move and the values? underneath that and what's our agenda to get that done right and we see health as the outcome of that uh, and then healing uh, certainly is in conversation with that right and we know that uh, healing is oftentimes can be a vague word um, but we want to forward uh, a definition that healing is a process uh, it is a lifelong often process uh, of reestablishing safety reestablishing agency and finding purpose and meaning beyond and inclusive of, inclusive of harm and traumatic events. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there are a really uh, wonderful and amazing examples of folks across the country who are thinking about healing in this way and are thinking about how do we incorporate healing into organizing work. Uh, and certainly healing is about the individual, uh, but it's in service to what? And again, service to what political agenda is the question that we think is important to acknowledge. Right. Uh, if you think about um, really wonderful work that's happening uh, that I've been privileged to be a part of at Dignity and Power Now, I know that Guadalupe is online on this webinar and she leads that work as a director of health and wellness, uh, setting up pop up clinics in front of jails, right? And really creating healing spaces where folks can get trauma treatments, can talk to therapists, can get massages, can uh, get acupuncture. Uh, and do a lot of the things that we talked about previously that Tran had explained in terms of addressing the ways our nervous systems are impacted in a very real way, but even being uh, in these facilities, around these facilities as our loved ones are being captured inside, changing the way we relate to those spaces, setting those spaces up, and then organizing, right? And I'm very, I know DPN is one example of many across the country where folks are thinking about and leveraging healing as a way to actually build more power uh, and build more capacity. Uh, and so we really wanna make sure that in this moment, as we're thinking about uh, resilience and what resilience means, and we're drawing a distinction between uh, resilience as something that we do just to endure, but actually think about it through the lens of politicized healing. Think about it through the lens and through the practice of how are we building through our healing work, through our organizing work, really explicit awarenesses of how our bodies are in relationship to the systems that govern and sustain or deplete our lives. Uh, and I'd be curious for folks uh, who are on the webinar, uh, what are some of those practices? What are some of the really dope examples that you are either doing 
or um, or have seen, uh, maybe you want to drop those in uh, the chat box and let us know what are some of the things that you see happening across the country where folks are thinking about politicized healing uh, in this way or that ways that inspire you uh, to really uh, scale healing up in a way um, that challenges the ways that society is structured. Uh, and lastly, what I want to do is lift up this definition of trauma that we had talked about earlier. And I think the Judith Herman uh, definition is helpful um, because fundamentally, uh, trauma is about powerlessness. And when we see uh, the experience of trauma as, as powerlessness being part of the recipe of that, uh, we see the ways in which a lot of the institutions um, that we are challenging um, make use of that. Uh, and so uh, we lift up trauma as a really clear uh, kind of diagnosis of uh, how uh, these systems are operating. But at the same time, uh, we know that we are doing something in response. And this definition of politicized healing is something we want to lift up uh, to recognize how are we in response to that. And we sit, situate resilience within that. And so we want to talk about resilience very specifically now. And we're going to pass it to Prentice to walk us through what do we mean by resilience? Uh, and how do we think about practicing it uh, as we move through this conversation? All right. Thanks, Mark Anthony. Thanks, Ron. Um, yeah, so we just wanted, before we get into any conversation really about resilience, I just wanted us to take a minute here and just drop in again to that place of sensation that we were kind of feeling into earlier. But I want to ask you to reflect on or feel a moment where you felt resilient with other folks. And you can just like draw it up as a memory first. Just think through, go through that catalog. What was the time you felt according to how you conceptualize resilience now? When was the time that you felt resilient with a group of people? Awesome. When you have that, I want you to reflect on you feel spontaneous in that moment. You feel like anything would happen. Did you feel like you were able to co-create with that group? Is there a sense of curiosity about what was possible? Really reflect on that and then reflect here on how did that come to be? So maybe it's a moment in your organizing work. Um, maybe it's a moment in your uh, healing work. But it's the moment where you felt, I felt resilient. I felt alive with this group. How did you get there? How did you get there? Because there's a wisdom in that that we want to also be paying attention to in that. Um, a lot of, I think Fran mentioned this earlier, but a lot of the things we're talking about here is traditional ancestral technologies. And so sometimes we can find ourselves in practices um, and we may not have the kind of cognition or memory that tells us exactly how we got there, but it's a part of our lineage. So just want us to kind of ground in a moment of resilience, of collective resilience in particular, and have that be with you as we kind of move through this definition in this frame. How can you explore that moment with some of these concepts that we're um, inviting you to think about or be with? Um, there's some beautiful examples in here. Thank you for that. Um, so we want to offer uh, our definition of resilience, what we think resilience is. Um, and I'll kind of tease that apart. Uh, as we move forward. But for us, resilience is um, an innate ability to be generative, creative, adaptive, relational. And we kind of hold those as um, the pillars of resilience, and I'll talk about each of those in a minute. It's also the practices that restore our generativity, our creativity, our adaptivity, and our relationality. So a couple things before we get into the pillars is that um, we are saying that resilience is something that is innate, 
and is also the practices that take us back to that state. Um, one of our teachers, somatics teachers, um, someone that I work closely with, Alta Star, talks about um, resilience as that original state, as our birthright, essentially. Um, we often think about it kind of only in relationship to traumatic experiences, and it does have a relationship to traumatic experiences that we'll talk about. Um, but we really think it's important for us to um, kind of hold resilience as the kind of natural capacities of being alive. Like we, this is part of how we are alive and engage with the world. Um, and so generativity here is essentially this um, capacity or idea that we can uh, be moved to take action that something can happen in the world or something can exist in the world and we'll be compelled to take action around that, um, that something in us can be uniquely motivated, our kind of volition um, in the world is generativity is how we hold that. Creativity um, is our, how we think about things in new ways or how we do things in new ways we think about as creative and that can be artistic obviously, but it can also be um, how we think about uh, strategy and movement. I'll talk about that a little bit later. But our, our sense of creativity, again, something that's really unique to us. Also, this piece around adaptivity. So um, the way we're holding that kind of in this frame is that um, something can happen, we can take that in and learn and adjust. Um, and that that is part of what makes up resilience, is our ability to adjust, shift, in relationship to shifting conditions and what happens in life. And then this piece around relationality, and I, I really like to expand this beyond the kind of human realm even, but our ability essentially to be curious about other life and relate to other life, to be engaged with other life um, is relationality or how we're holding relationality in this frame. So that to us is what resilience is. And when we talk about the practices that restore those capacities, um, we're talking about practices that'll take us back there, either engage in one of those concepts or get us back to that point. Um, so that's how we're holding resilience here. Um, what else do I want to say? One of the things that I often say uh, about it is that it's, it's distinct from survival, right? It's, it's restoring us back to the possibility that's inherent in life. Um, it's being curious and engaged, being on the edge of possibility with life is what resilience kind of offers and brings us into. Um, one of the things that Fran and, and Mark Anthony pointed to earlier was trauma. And so um, holding that there's something inherent about resilience, there also is a relationship to trauma. And we've already kind of defined how we hold trauma and what definitions we use here. Um, but one piece that I just want to share with you um, that I kind of hold to be true here is that trauma is inherent to life. And sometimes we can envision liberation where trauma doesn't exist, but it, it, I would argue that it's, trauma is actually inherent to life and being alive. But there will be events, moments um, like this one, unfortunately, that we're in, like um, storms, like um, living and dying that will be overwhelming to our systems. And for whatever reason, we may not be able to process that truth through. So there's something about trauma that is, can be inherent to life. Um, and oppression is actually how society organizes itself to control and distribute trauma. So I want that to just sit with you for a minute that um, one of the things we're arguing is that what oppression ends up being fundamentally is the organization, the concentration of traumatic experiences in certain communities or with certain peoples and um, the, the removal of or the reduction of um, the, the kind of net or support it takes or the time or the resource to heal from or transform those traumatic experiences. That is what oppression ultimately does. And that's when we're talking about kind of generational trauma um, or collective trauma that communities experience. We're talking about the way it has been concentrated in our communities and the resources that have been 
pulled away or criminalized or interrupted so that um, it becomes more and more difficult for communities to actually heal from um, those traumatic experiences. So if um, oppression is organizing society around trauma, we think it's really critical that movement, those committed to movement, social change, organize our work, our culture, our organizations, our relationships around resilience um, as a way of restoring our own selves to the possibility of life and also a way of interacting with um, the conditions that we face. So that's essentially that, that we believe that our, the spaces where we come together, the spaces where we are together, um, should have or could have resilience embedded in them. And we believe that that would produce um, uh, a different kind of quality of experience together and would produce ultimately a different kind of world together. Um, one thing I just want to say, and Mark Anthony kind of uh, touched on it in the last piece, is that, I'll just take it back to the last slide, um, actually with COVID-19 is a really clear example of the way that um, trauma gets concentrated in the, and Black people's experience with COVID-19, the, the, the high death rates for Black people and Black communities, um, really is an example of the way that um, generational trauma has gotten concentrated in our communities and the impact that that has on the tax, actually, that being oppressed takes on our health and well-being. Um, so just want to kind of situate us in um, that we're not just looking at a kind of narrow experience of what ha is happening. This is a historical um, trajectory that we're in, and we're arguing that it's really important for us to kind of meet this moment with uh, a clearer sense of what's possible for how we come together. Um, I'm not going to go there exactly in this moment. Um, a couple things we want to like, I don't know, interrupt around the way resilience has um, gotten used in the past. I know often when we talk about resilience or when we do work around resilience, there's often a, a kind of like recoiling around the term or people saying, I don't like that term and that makes sense. And um, we still find it to be a really useful term and we think it's important for us to redefine what it means. Um, and some of the things that um, for us have made resilience a really hard word to kind of inhabit and make useful is that resilience has often been um, a kind of designation that is given to our communities for our ability to withstand or survive um, oppression. Like, oh, black people are so resilient because they still do A, B, C, and D on the other side of oppression. Um, so what we're holding that resilience is not an acclimation to conditions. Um, it's a broader commitment to life. So um, there we want to make clear distinctions about um, the way that oppression sometimes requires uh, a kind of performance of complacency. It's a violently enforced um, complacency and the difference of our, com our community's traditions around resilience, right? So the actual difference is that folks who are oppressing cannot tell you that you're being resilient. And often when they are, it's to um, kind of verify um, a kind of need, emotional, spiritual need that they have to not be responsible for the oppression that we are experiencing. So we want to say, we know how to do resilience. We've been doing resilience for a long time. It's organic. Um, it can be spontaneous. It's collective. And no one can tell us we're doing that. We know how to use that technology. And we want to reclaim our ability to use that technology to bring us um, into more connection with each other and, and into our power. Um, the other quick note around that, let me see if I have a slide, um, is that we're not talking about overriding our feelings. I think that's a really important distinction to make is that we are not saying um, something happens, you better hurry up and be resilient, right? And some of us can have that embedded in us for a whole lot of different reasons. We can have an embedded override of how we actually feel or what we actually want or override of our grief or our pain. Um, we are holding resilience 
as not an override. Um, and actually, it's really critical that we be able to be with what is, which might be the big grief, which might be um, the big rage, and that that's actually going to help us restore our sense of what's possible to feel that together. And so that can be a really critical component of what makes a community or group of people resilient. It's not just about being happy. Um, it's about us um, allowing ourselves to have our full range of expression and be live with one another. Um, the other piece we kind of keep talking about is the collective aspect of resilience. Now, um, it's really important that we have resilient practices. Um, I know for me, being out in nature is a really resilient space for me. I feel kind of instantly restored into what's possible when I'm out in the woods or out in nature. I know for other folks, um, creating music, uh, dancing, dancing for me too, um, but all of those things can kind of bring us back into that um, sense of wonder. Um, but we think it's also really important to think about um, collective resilience as a really important um, practice. And um, one of the things we talk about as a group that there are sometimes that there are some things that an individual body will have trouble experiencing without the collective. That it may feel so overwhelming to feel a particular feeling that to be kind of joined with in grief or tiptoeing into resilience actually creates more pos more possibility for the individual body. Um, so we think collective resilience uh, in general is important and is particularly important for um, our movements and our organizations and the kinds of culture, kinds of culture that we want to create there. Um, the collective resilience is critical. Um, Okay, so I've talked a lot about resilience and trying to make the distinctions here for us. Um, how do you know when you're doing it? I had this conversation recently um, with someone in movement about um, how do we know? How do we know? So we can say I'm engaging in a resilient practice um, because I am outside in nature. But if the practice isn't restore isn't actually engaging those four pillars that we talked about your sense of generativity your sense of adaptability your sense of creativity relationality um, then that might not be the resilience practice for you or for your group that resilience is an embodied experience of that sense of wonder of possibility we know when we touch into it when we're like oh, there's more, right? Um, what can happen to us often through trauma and oppression is that sometimes we can become small, smaller than we are around our experiences, feel like we actually have no agency, a way to change and shift conditions. Or sometimes we can move into a sense of, um, I can control everything. If I could just control everything, um, then everything would be all right. Um, we believe that resilience right sizes you, right? It's one of the things I mentioned at the top that it actually allows you to feel a sense of agency, but also feel a sense of wonder. To be actively engaged in life, to be related to life, to possibility, to that flow and exchange of energy is what resilience brings us into. So that is what we're looking for. And whatever kind of practice speaks to you or works for you, it's that embodied sense of being on an engaged um, participant in life, on the edge of life. Um, for groups in particular, um, kind of talked about the experience of collective resilience and why that's important. Um, we're synchronizing, we can synchronize our nervous systems and then make things more feelable um, as a group. Um, for organizations, you know, we as Resilient Strategies work with organizations around how to build a more resilient um, culture is that we are looking at these kind of pillars as critical to movement building and to power building in organizations. So knowing that, I think I mentioned it earlier, but creativity as a pillar, for example, unlocks the capacity to vision that we want. Um, it unlocks 
um, the ability to find kind of nuances in uh, our strategy that unlock new things and make new things possible. Um, it helps us figure out how to take action in ways that are unique to us, our contribution, that generativity is possible. That's the application of our own personal power into a kind of collective field of power. Um, and our relationality, organizing, movement building, um, rest on our ability to create relationships. That's what we're doing. We're connecting each other up and building relationships. Um, and adaptability. So watching changing conditions, it's important for us to be generating a sense of adaptability because that's what helps us learn from the actions that we then take in the world. So um, for each organization, it's going to look different or be different to think about what resilience culture looks like for that organization. Um, I talked about our ancestors utilizing ritual um, to and practices to synchronize the collective um, into what we think are these four pillars. Um, organizations, movement has to be in a question of what are the practices and what are the rituals that we want to be uh, creating that are going to keep us um, moving towards resilience. Just got a message that this bird is loud. There's nothing I can do. It's, you know, singing their song. Um, and our organizing work as it is um, can also be resilient. It is a place where we take action. So how do we keep thinking about um, our organizing, the way that we do it, um, what we are visioning for in ways that keep building communities' capacity, our leadership's capacity um, for resilience? And that's how we really want to structure kind of our work the last thing I want to say here, because I feel like I've said a lot of things, um, is that uh, a lot of us that do um, movement work, or organizing work, we talk about um, abolition and the way that the carceral state in particular has disappeared, has um, armed uh, individuals and our communities and knowing that there is a different way of um, one addressing harm but also um, allowing communities to flourish to not be over policed criminalized etc um, when we were talking earlier this week about this piece around resilient culture it felt important to share that the vision of abolition in order for us to engage in a long fight of abolition, it re requires us to um, be resilient, to be resilient in our organizing. Um, when you have such a, a, a large goal and a big vision, how do we be resilient along that path? But also ultimately the idea and concept, the theory of abolition is about ultimately on the other side of abolition or what abolition is asking us to do is build resilient communities, communities that have the freedom, the resources, um, the skills to respond, adapt, to generate um, all of these things. So we know that that work of building resilient resilience in our cultures and in our communities um, is fundamentally about how we restore power um, for ourselves, for our communities, is through um, centering resilience in all that we do. Thank you, Prentice. So maybe we can all just take like a, a deep breath and take all that. I know we've been taking a lot in. So if you want to breathe with me, um, we can take that deep breath now. I don't have a lot to say about resilience and building power because I feel like it was all sort of laid out very clearly over the last couple of presentations by Mark Anthony and Prentice. Um, but what I do want to kind of say to close this out is that, you know, the, what we already know, right, which is um, the state is exposing itself. There are whole sectors of the population that are suffering profoundly, and there are whole sectors of the population that are being ra radicalized in this moment, right? 
and, um, and, and some of those coincide. Um, and that as a movement, as movement people, depending on your role, what you do in the world, what you did before this, um, what you will do after, we are feeling into our fears and anxieties and the uncertainty and a lot of other feelings that are coming up, despair, grief. Um, but it's also a really interesting moment where people are feeling into a lot of what the resilience um, conversation has been thus far and those four pillars that we're talking about, right? Um, uh, being generative and being creative and adapting to the situation and relating to to each other in ways that we actually hadn't in a long time, even though we're separated physically. And so many of us are centering our own emotional well-being. Um, and that is actually a really important silver lining to all this because not because we're really clear on how to do that, um, but because we're kind of being like the moment is demanding that of us and, and not because we're very practiced in it, but there's something innate that is happening, right? And uh, our systems are demanding it. And so in this moment where um, courage is really showing up as a value for you all and, um, and you all are leaning into, into this, vulnerable, this vulnerability which is really beautiful and our movements um, both in the political work that's happening, ways in which people are supporting each other and then within our own spaces and with our own families. I want to just post a few questions. You can answer some on the chat or just even to leave us off with some of these things to ponder. Um, not that we haven't named enough things to ponder um, for all of us is how are you taking the time to reflect on the old practices in your work and what is being birthed right now? intentionally and unintentionally, both by us as individuals and also as collectives, right? And as, as, as even like society, right? What do we want to cultivate in this moment, right? Where we're sort of being forced to sit with ourselves. <laughs> um, and the, the universe has taken this, has like pressed the, the, the pause button in a lot of ways. And we're having to move really fast and we're having to go really slow, right? Somebody uh, this past weekend, uh, her name is Marcia, talked about having to move really fast and having to move really slow at the same time. And what do we want to do with the stillness that we're being gifted? What do we want to do with this moment that we're being gifted um, in the midst of you know, all that is happening that's overwhelming us and that is happening really fast? One of the pillars is creativity. And one of the things I was reading is cultivating creativity is something that's innate to us. We actually were born to do this. We were born to be creative. And when we, when we um, reject that, that rejection of creativity in us and our collectives and our groups and our families in the spaces in society that metastasizes into grief, into rage, into judgment, into sorrow, into shame, into all of these things. And so, you know, it's a good moment to reflect of how are we being creative in this moment, not only individually, but at scale, like, or even in the containers that we were building in movement, you know, some of us are really stuck in the way that we think organizing should happen or movement building should happen. Like this is a moment to kind of shake a lot of stuff up um, and seeing if there was grief and rage and judgment and sorrow and shame and things that were sort of building up in the spaces that we were building um, in the containers that we have. And so, what are we encouraging our teams to cultivate? How are we cultivating these four pillars and within it gratitude and joy and rest? And, and then what are the learnings in this moment? Can we write them down? Can we reflect on them? Can we discuss them? Can we go back to the drawing board, whether now or, or in the process of, of this pandemic playing out and, and reaffirm the path or carve new ones, right? Um, in the process of reflection. Again, to give love to, to Marcia from um, Healing by Choice in Detroit, uh, who said this, we, we've known crisis. Um, many of our people have been in crisis for generations. This, this thing of moving fast and also moving slow spiritually and emotionally and tending to that and building that spiritual resilience muscle for that cultural shift that we want to create. Is there a culture shift we want to create? What does that look like? And so those are the questions we want to leave you with. Those are the questions we are pondering and we want to continue pondering in our work and our practice. Um, and again, we just want to thank you 
from the bottom of our hearts for joining us for this conversation. Conversation and the the conversation we wanted to have for a long time and then also that um that we hope you'll continue. And special shout out to our amazing tech support, uh, Devin de la Leña and Ari de la Leña. And I'm just going to close off my part there. And I don't know if there's any closing words that Mark Anthony or Prentice want to put out. I just want to say quickly that, um, well, thank you all for um, being a part of this conversation. I'm really excited to see where this all goes and how we can keep developing this and practicing this most importantly together. I uh, just wanted to share my gratitude to everyone that joined the call. Um, we really appreciate y'all uh, spending time with us and also appreciate the work that we know you're doing and the work we don't know that you're doing. Uh, we're inspired by that. And this, this work that we're doing around politicized healing and resilience and human justice is really fueled by, um, you know, the opportunities we see in this moment. So thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thank you for listening to La Cura Podcast. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Francisca Porchas Coronado, edited by Rafael Maya. Music is by Rafael Maya. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Bye bye, la woo.